The primary focus of my talk is uh, the deep history of Pueblo people, a 4,000 year old history. But it's also a talk about human history because the Pueblo story is one of the best documented examples of one of the most important chapters in human history, which we call the Neolithic Revolution. The Neolithic Revolution is the, the transformation of human societies from societies that were depending on hunting and gathering wild foods to the, the first societies that had domesticated food production. And uh, that's the story that I'll be talking about tonight. Trying to advance a slide. We, we both have helpers on both ends. <laughs> yeah. There we go, fix that. Um, my colleague here is uh, Dylan Schwint, who's uh, not only the IT director at Crow Canyon, but also a research colleague that I've published with. So here's a picture of Crow Canyon's campus. We're located just outside of Cortez, Colorado. Um, so part proud of this place that was founded in 1983. That's a sleeping Ute mountain in the background. Crow Canyon has a unique mission to conduct long-term multidisciplinary archaeological research, to do that research in the context of public education programs where people like you come and help us with that research, and to design and deliver those research and education programs in partnerships with American Indians. So to give you a little bit of a feel of Crow Canyon, I'm going to get Sarah to queue up a video. And this is going to start with Stuart Strever, who is the center's founder. He was a professor at Northwestern University when he founded the center, although he left that position to just focus on Crow Canyon. And then Stuart will be followed by Ricky Lightfoot, one of the first archaeologists hired by the center, who will be talking about the early days. So take it away, Sarah. Crow Canyon is an experiment on how to do archaeology like archaeologists in the world have never been able to do. Sustain a long-term research program to really find out what happened in history. It's one of those truly entrepreneurial things where we had nothing to lose because we had nothing. We joked about it being the classic fly-by-night operation. The original guy who had helped Stuart get set up down here, Ed Berger, had gone out and got a lot of old highway department trailers and teepees for putting the kids in. The whole thing looked like you could have hooked up the trailers and been out of here in no time at all. But that was really a way of just getting started. And little by little, we added staff, added facilities, and built new buildings. So it's a, rem it's a remarkable mission. And um, it's one of the reasons why, despite a lot of people uh, not being able to imagine it, we've succeeded over the last 40 or so years. Uh, the other reason we've succeeded is we're working in one of the greatest archaeological regions of the world, the Four Corners region, American Southwest. On this map, you can see the town of Cortez, Crow Canyon's located just outside of Cortez. That river that you see, I'll use my cursor and see if this works. Um, is this one of the two great rivers of the American Southwest, the San Juan River. This is the San Juan Geologic Basin. I'll be talking about Chaco Canyon, which is located right in here. And then this is the Northern Rio Grande region, where the many of the modern Pueblos are located today. That area has the highest density of archaeological sites anywhere in the United States, as many as 100 archaeological sites per square mile. And those sites were left behind by the descendants of the Pueblo people. And this is the other reason why Crow Canyon has succeeded, and probably the primary reason, because of Pueblo Indian culture. It's one of the most remarkable societies on the planet and it's still a thriving society today. This image shows the location of the Pueblos. Uh, 
21, there's 21 different Pueblos. 20 of them are shown on this figure. There's also one in Texas near the city of El Paso. Um, and these are color coded by different, the different languages that Pueblo people speak. So this is one of the most interesting things about Pueblo Indian society. It's comprised of groups of people that speak totally different languages and had different histories. Yet over this fourth that I'm gonna be talking about you two, they interacted with each other so much that they created a shared culture. <clears throat> so going back, here's the Pueblo present. This is where the Pueblos are today. And each one of these considers themselves a sovereign nation. This is where it began. It began with the domestication of corn from a wild grass called Teospinte. And that happened in the Rio Balsas River drainage of west, southwest Mexico. The evidence indicates that that process of domestication, which transformed this wild grass into the plant we know today as corn, began about nine to 10,000 years ago. The earliest corn cob that you can hold in your hand, and that's a picture of it, that black and white picture, is from a cave, that's the cave, called Gila Nikitz, which is located in the modern state of Oaxaca, Mexico. And that uh, corn cob dates to 6,230 years ago. Wow. It was 4,000 years ago that corn farming moved north from Mexico and into the American Southwest. And that's the introduction of corn farming into the Southwest is the event for archeologists that marks the beginning of Pueblo Indian culture. In Pueblo Indian oral tradition, it's also the event that marks the origins of Pueblo culture, emerging from an underworld into this world where they were given the tools to become farmers. I'm gonna be reconstructing chapters of this 4,000 year old history using four different Crow Canyon archeological projects. The Basket Maker Communities Project, which I may call the BCP, the Village Ecodynamics Project, that I may call the VEP, the Pueblo Farming Project, PFP, and the Northern Chaco Outliers Project. <clears throat> Starting with the VEP, um, it's the largest archeological project that was funded by the NSF between 2001 and 2014. And it has many different aspects to it, um, including a really sophisticated computer simulation and computer modeling that I'll be talking about later. But Crow Canyon's part of this project was to build the first ever synthetic database of every known site, archeological site in our study area of Southwestern Colorado. So take a close look at this image. That blue square is the boundaries of our study area, and it is filled with 18,000 red dots. And each one of those red dots is an archeological site. So what archeologists do is they walk over the surface and where they find a concentration of artifacts, they record that as a site. So there's 18,000 of those that we compiled into our database. Um, we'll be looking at this square, this study area, several times tonight. So um, it's a, we're looking at Southwest Colorado and uh, you can see some of the towns uh, that are labeled on that uh, map to orient you. We use the surface artifacts on these sites to date them and put them in different time periods. And this shows the distribution of those sites by different time periods. And what we found when we analyzed this database of 18,000 sites is that there's been human use of this landscape for at least the last 10,000 years, but that the vast majority of the sites date to the Pueblo time period, which is much shorter in duration and 90% of those 18,000 archeological sites are Pueblo cultural sites that date between AD 600 and 1300. What we did is analyze the surface remains of those Pueblo sites, um, mapping the sites to determine how many people live there. 
based on the size of the buildings that were there, and then use the pottery on the surface to assign those sites into one of 14 time periods between 600 and 1280. And, and thereby we created the first synthetic population reconstruction for this region. And that's what's shown in this bar graph. So the, the size of the bar, the vertical top of the bar shows you how many people, um, and then the time periods are along the, the bottom. It shows that the population peaked at about 27,000 people, which is almost exactly the same people that live in that area today. It also shows that that peak population happened just decades before the entire region was depopulated by Pueblo people. So I'm gonna focus on three periods in this talk. The period of colonization, the, what we call the period of Chacoan influence, and then the final period where there's the population peak followed by the depopulation. This image is actually a, a pictograph, a painted cliff face that is images left by the very first farmers that entered our study area. And this map shows the earliest dated sites where corn or maize has been directly dated. And it shows them as these contours where the sites that are located within the darker brown, the darkest brown area are the oldest sites dating to about 2000 BC or 4000 years ago. And then moving through lighter shades of brown to more recent sites ending with the period at about 400 BC. So this is the period of agricultural experimentation. And when we get to 400 BC, we end up with new settlement clusters where the sites are occupied, they're, they're the houses of farmers that are fully committed farmers. And this shows the locations of those settlement clusters of the first farmers in the Four Corners region. And recently, as we've been studying these sites, we realize that they form two distinct groups that we call Western basket maker, shown in the turquoise here, and Eastern basket maker, shown in the neon green. At least that's the colors on my screen. Yeah, we see the same thing. So the reason we think that these are different, um, that we call these different, we distinguish between Western and Eastern basket makers is they made different types of rock art. They chipped their projectile points differently. The techniques that they used to weave baskets were different. So what we've come to learn is that the Western basket makers are comprised of a group of immigrants who moved up from the South, bringing corn farming with them. And the petroglyph in the center is the rock art that was created by the first farmers. And they moved into the Western basket maker area. When they moved into that area, there was a group of hunter gatherers already living there and they produced that rock art that's on the left. And we can see those two groups interacting to form the Western basket makers, the first farmers in the Western area. The East is occupied by a different linguistic group of hunter gatherers and they were, their descendants were the hunter gatherers that had been living in that area for thousands of years. And after the immigrant farmers moved in, over a relatively short period of time, these folks gave up their hunting and gathering way of life and became farmers too. Now what's interesting is that we have these Western basket makers and Eastern basket makers, but the area where I showed you the, the VEP study area before, that blue square, is the Central Mesa Verde region. And it's indicated by this, I've indicated it here on this map. And what's interesting is that's the area that becomes the most densely populated area in the subsequent centuries. But during this period from about 400 BC to about 600 AD, there's almost no settlement by farmers in that area. When we look at our database of 18,000 sites, we can only find 68 sites 
that date to this period between 400 BC and 600 AD. So it's incredibly lightly settled. But look at what happens over the next 125 years. Several thousand sites are settled in this area. And when we analyze those sites, we estimate that during this period of colonization between AD 600 and 725, that about 3,000 people of these farm, 3,000 people that are in these farm families move into the area in that time period. And it's this period that's so dramatic that is the focus of our Basket Maker Communities Project at Crow Canyon. So what we did is we looked at all of the Basket Maker 3 sites. So even though this, these all probably just look like lots of red dots, this isn't the 18,000 sites that I showed you to before. These red dots are just the ones that were occupied between 600 and 725. And we decided to do the Basket Maker Communities Project in that area that circled because it had a really special site called the Dillard site. And I say we because everything we do at Crow Canyon is a team of researchers and educators working together. And I just wanted to show you what some of these folks look like and folks that you could come work with uh, when you come to Crow Canyon. It's just a, it's really a great thing to be a part of this larger uh, group of colleagues. Um, this is an artist reconstruction of this really special site that became uh, the, the focus of the Basket Maker Communities Project. We call it the Dillard site. And it's, it's important because it's the largest site dating to this time period. It consists of a northern neighborhood of pit houses that were the dwellings that individual families used. And that northern cluster is surrounded by a stockade. Then there's a southern cluster of pit houses that were dwellings. But in the center is a new type of structure. And that structure is called a great kiva. Um, and that great kiva became the focus of our excavations. So this shows adult students that traveled to Crow Canyon to work in that great kiva. And this shows the excavated floor of that building. I think it's kind of hard for you to imagine just from these pictures what this looked like. So this is a uh, animated uh, reconstruction of excavating the pit, putting the uprights and creating the timbers for the roof, covering those timbers uh, with smaller timbers, covering that with other vegetal material, covering that with a layer of earth. There was a layer of stone around the perimeter, then another layer of earth. <laughs> When Pueblo people came to use this building, it wasn't for day-to-day -day life. This is the first period where they created a structure for ceremonial activity by much larger groups of people. And when Pueblo people came and used this structure, this is the period when great kivas were invented. There were no great kivas before this period. And we, there's really only been about a half a dozen that have ever been found and excavated in the entire Southwest during this time period. Um, and when Pueblo people came here to partake of the ceremonies and rituals and other activities that took place in this great Kiva, it would have been the largest building that they had ever seen in their lives. There had never been a building like it prior to the construction of this great Kiva. So we're still just beginning. We've just finished the field work a couple years ago, and we're just beginning the analysis and, and publication of these materials. But one of the things we've noticed is that this great Kiva site has a higher percentage of bowls than the surrounding residential neighborhoods and the surrounding residential sites in the entire region. And we think that's because those bowls were used in communal feasts that were part of the ceremonies that occurred in this great Kiva. That type of activity might be recorded in this famous petroglyph panel from uh, Southeast Utah. This is called the procession panel. The image on top is the whole panel. The one on the bottom is a close-up. And what I hope you can see is that it shows processions of individuals coming from different directions to this circle in the middle that I believe could indicate a great kiva. That circle could also have multiple meanings and the great kiva could embody uh, aspects of Pueblo cosmology 
where Pueblo people believe that they entered this world from a series of underworlds. And it's in this world that they um, were given this gift of agriculture and that they uh, set out on the path of becoming Pueblo people. So the, the Basket Maker Communities Project is really focused on this really important chapter of the Neolithic Revolution and of Pueblo history where the beginning of domesticated food production, in this case focused on corn farming, resulted in the first episode in human history of exponential population growth. That population growth resulted in settlement expansion like the colonization of Southwest Colorado. And then Pueblo people invented these new cultural institutions like Great Kiva ceremonialism which I believed allowed Pueblo people to integrate for the first time these groups of people that spoke different languages and had different histories. And this great kivas and the ceremonialism that went with it created this new institution that created a Pueblo cultural identity that was overarching uh, over those uh, linguistic and historic differences. So that's my first chapter. I'm now gonna move on to this Chaco period, which you could divide into early and late. And that's the subject of our current uh, project, our current project where we're doing field work, which is called the Northern Chaco Outliers Project. Um, I bet a lot of you have been to Chaco Canyon. I'm curious what the percentage would be, but Chaco Canyon is located in the present day state of New Mexico about 200 miles south of the area that I've been talking about. This view shows the canyon. It shows on the bottom left, uh, one of the most incredible buildings in that canyon, Pueblo Benito. And it shows the incredible masonry uh, that uh, is characteristic of these uh, buildings in Chaco Canyon. Here's a map where you can see the location of Chaco Canyon relative to Cortez and the the area where we're working right now, which is called the Lakeview Group. Coming back to this picture of Chaco Canyon, this is looking west through the canyon. That's Fajada Butte out in the middle. And I'm, I showed this again, because I wanted you to orient to this map. So you can see Fajada Butte on this map. That picture was taken standing about where the, the building that's called Wajiji, which is one of these large buildings that archaeologists call a great house. And we were, you were standing at Wajiji and looking down the canyon. And as you look down that 12-mile stretch of Chaco Canyon, there's a dense concentration of 12 of these amazing buildings that archaeologists call great houses. This shows, three, this shows a map of all 12 of those great houses to show that they vary a lot in size. And it shows three of the largest great houses, Pueblo Benito on the lower left, Chetro Kettle on the lower right, and Pueblo Alto in the upper right. And this shows those buildings on the landscape. A really dramatic place. If you uh, haven't been there, um, you got a hole in your bucket. and. You need to go, and <laughs> Crow, Canyon, Crow Canyon would be happy to take you. We take uh, educational trips uh, to this area every year. When you look up at Pueblo Alto, you can actually see these linear scars in the landscape. Those are actually constructed roads that were 27 feet wide that, um, that emanate out from Chaco Canyon. So the important thing about Chaco Canyon is between the mid 800s and the mid 1100s, it became a political and ceremonial center for the entire Pueblo world. This is a picture of Pueblo Benito uh, from the 1890s, um, uh, artist reconstruction in the upper left. And in the upper right, it shows how it was built in phases over that 300 year period. It started out relatively small and that small part is actually right in here, if you can see my cursor. Every artist reconstruction shows it as four stories high across the back, but those are wrong. This part where they built this early part, they never tore it down. 
And instead, they curated that oldest single-story building. And that single-story building became, it was lived in at first, but when it quit being lived in, and as the Pueblo expanded, it became a re-interval crypt where the leaders of Chaco Canyon were interred. And those represent today the most elaborate burials with the most uh, extravagant burial offerings that have ever been found in the Pueblo world. An indication that Chaco Canyon was a period of political and social complexity that is um, unique in the deep history of Pueblo people. The other thing we know about the Chaco period is that Chaco Canyon became the center of a long distance trade network that didn't exist earlier or later. They were importing live macaws from Mexico. Those macaw feathers were woven into um, garments like that macaw feather sash. Um, turquoise from across the Southwest was being processed and redistributed from Chaco Canyon. Glycimerous shell bracelets in the upper right. That shell comes from the uh, Pacific off the west coast of uh, Baja, California, um, fashioned into bracelets. Uh, copper bells from West Mexico. We know that they were bringing chocolate up and drinking chocolate in special vessels that were made at Chaco Canyon. And they were circulating um, different types of pottery and exchanging those over a large region. So what happens is Chaco Canyon is right here where this dense concentration of the largest great houses are. But over that 300 year period, smaller sites that we call Chaco and outliers appear in the larger region. And archeologists have created a database of every known one of these sites. And there's about 150 of those. Um, and what that tells us is that Chaco Canyon was actually the center of a much larger polity. And that's the subject of our Northern Chaco Outliers project, is how did that polity expand into Southwestern Colorado? We've identified 31 of those outliers in, in Southwestern Colorado, and we've identified an unusual concentration of three of those outliers that's called the Lakeview Group. And we are currently conducting uh, field work at uh, one of those sites called the Haney site. This is a picture of the Chaco Great House. Uh, there's actually two great houses at this site, a West Great House, and this is the East Great House, a multi-story building. Uh, and this is a three-dimensional uh, reconstruction of that. This is actually a composite of about 3,000 photographs where computer software matches up the pixels in those 3,000 to create a three-dimensional image that shows you this building. The, um, one of the things that sets this site Haney apart is that most outliers are focused on the Chaco period, but this site has a much longer history. So when we began our work at this site, we analyzed pottery from the surface of the site, and we analyzed over 3,000 pottery sherds. And what we found is pottery from every century from the AD 600s to the AD 1200s. So our current excavations use that to examine this history of this site and under, try to understand how the Chaco building emerged from this centuries long earlier history. That building in the upper, the circular building in the upper right hand corner of this image, uh, it was first excavated by non-professional archeologists that some people would call looters. And when they dug that building, it had an intact roof. We tree ring, we used the timbers from that roof to get tree ring dates, which tells us that that building every day dated to the same year, AD 1111. So we know that that building was built in AD 1111. That's actually a really interesting year to me because 
uh, that's the year of something that we call a lunar standstill. The moon where it rises on the horizon changes every full moon and it reaches its, it goes from a northern uh, place to a, uh, from a southern place to a northern place and 11 is a year that it reached its northernmost extent. And we know that the, that lunar cycle was of great interest to Pueblo people and that they were recording that um, and, and uh, it was an important part of their cosmology and their ceremonial life. So that's my uh, second chapter on the Chaco period. I'm now going to turn to the final period of peak population followed by migration and depopulation, the early to late 1200s. And I'm going to ask two questions, or we're going to talk about two questions. Why did Pueblo people leave and where did they go? This is a picture of the, the largest cliff dwelling in Mesa Verde National Park, Cliff Palace, which many of you may have visited. And a point that I want to make is that um, addressing these two questions of why did they leave and where did they go, this is a chapter in this 4,000-year-old history of Pueblo people that trans totally transforms the Pueblo world. So why did they leave? You're probably scratching your head wondering what this image is. Um, so I'll see if I can explain it. This is that same square study area in southwestern Colorado. And one part of the VEP was we did a very sophisticated computer simulation and computer modeling to reconstruct the agricultural productivity of this region. And this map shows the average productivity and how it varied across space, depending on the nature of the soils and the elevation. So in this map, the lowest productive areas are those little red dots. The next lowest is the yellow areas. The next, I'm sorry, the lowest is the red. The next highest from that, but still low, are the yellow areas. The next highest from that and sort of creeping into moderate agricultural yields are the brown areas. And the most uh, productive areas are the green areas on this map with the dark green dots being the absolutely most productive. So how did we get this? Well, what we did is we divided this large study area into smaller study units that were 400 by 400 meters on a side. So about 200, about two football fields on a side. And there's many ten, tens of thousands of those study units in this image. We figured out the, the type of soil that was in every one of those many tens of thousands of study units. And we figured out the moisture holding capacity of those soils. We then used tree rings to reconstruct the amount of precipitation that fell every year between AD 600 and AD 1300, and how that the amount of precipitation changed every year during that 700-year span. We then combined the soils information and the reconstructed precipitation to get something called the Palmer Drought Severity Index, which is the amount of soil moisture that was available in July of every year for every one of those tens of thousands of pixels for every year in that 700-year span between 600 and 1300. PD, the PDSI value is used by modern agronomists today. And we, we, now, we looked at the PDSI values for every year in the early 1900s when we had the first records of agricultural yields. And we did a statistical analysis that created the relationship between PDSI value and yields. In other words, if you have this PDSI value on this type of soil, this is what your yield is gonna be. And we took that relationship from these historic records and we projected that back into the past so that for every one of the many tens of thousands of pixels on this map 
we can tell you how much corn, we can estimate how much corn could have been grown on that two football field by two football field size area for every year between 600 and 1300. We're uh, exceptionally proud of that accomplishment. So they tell you you should never show a graph like this in a public talk, but I'm going to see if I can. <clears throat> I'm going to see if I can uh, help you appreciate it. This is that 700 years, and these are the yield. Let me just. Thanks. Okay, I will. That will help me. Okay, so this is uh, every year between 600 and 1300. The yellow line is the 700 year average yield. The black bars within the white band are the years that were within one standard deviation of the average. So they're years where the yields, even though they varied every year, they were relatively close to the average yield. The red bars are years of extreme drought where the yields were greater than one standard deviation. And you can see in that 700 year time period, Pueblo people had to deal with 108 year, years of catastrophically low yields. The green bars are extremely wet years where yields were greater than one standard deviation from the average. So those would have been wet years that were extremely, exceptionally abundant yields. So this is what Pueblo people, Pueblo farmers had to deal with, was this extreme annual variation, including year, years that would have had catastrophically low yields and extremely abundant, uh, years with extremely abundant yields. So one of the things they had to invent was really good storage facilities. And it probably also indicates that their fields were large enough so that in, in average to better than average year, years, they grew more than they needed for one year. And when the first Europeans encountered Pueblo people, they tried to have three years of storage in their stores to buffer this um, extreme annual variation. Now this is that same thing, except it's just showing the last hundred years. And look how many bars go below the average. Look how many more red bars there are than green bars. So clearly, environmental conditions that affected agricultural yields are a part of the story of why people migrated from the Mesa Verde region. Now, a lot of people might look at this and say, well, that's a computer model, and how do you know it's accurate? So we took that to heart, and we co-developed a project with the Pueblo of Hopi that we call the Pueblo Farming Project. And for 10 years, traditional Hopi farmers came to Crow Canyon the last 10 years, and they brought their seed with them, and they taught us traditional planting techniques and um, we planted every year and we measured how the changes in, in precipitation and temperature affected the yields in our fields every year for 10 years. And then we compared those, re those actual yields to what the estimates for the yields in our computer model were for those same areas. So I think the next slide is another video. Well, let me see. Yeah. So if Sarah can cue up a video, this is going to be two Hopi farmers planting uh, individual plot and then talking about corn. I can keep talking. Um, all right. When we look at our, our crops like planting like this, we don't look at them, them as numbers. We look at them as our children, like you're our children. 
That's how we look at our planet. We treat them like that. And so when you go to your field, you sing a song, and your children will hear you, hear you sing, and they'll, they'll say, our dad is coming. Where? Then they'll tiptoe, try to look over the horizon, and that's how they grow. And that's how you grow, right? So this is what one of our experimental plots looks like in a good year. Um, the trick to uh, dry farming, so they don't irrigate. This is all dry farm. The only moisture these plants get is what falls from the sky. And uh, our average here where this field is located is about 13 inches a year of precipitation. They plant multiple seeds as you saw in each clump. Um, they space those clumps wide apart so that there's no competition for soil moisture. Um, but interesting, and what you heard Donald Dawahongni was say is that um, these Hopi farmers believe with all of their being that um, the single most important factor that affects a successful harvest is what's in your heart as a farmer. And they put that into practice. So he talked about singing the song and and the um, the corn is really viewed as people and as their children. Um, so corn is not just a food crop for Pueblo people. It permeates rituals from everything from birth all the way up to death. Um, so you really can't um, over emphasize the importance of this plant and corn farming to Pueblo people and their identity as Pueblo people. And it's it's been one of the really great joys of my life to uh, work with Hopi people on this project. So this compares the average VEP yields with our, um, with our uh, computer estimates and they turn out to be pretty close which we were really happy that we could then interpret the results of our computer models. And one of the things we found pr prior to us, people argue that it just got dry and everybody left. It got dry, they couldn't farm and everybody left. But what our computer model shows is that's not true. That the, what we really have is the population peak, people moving into more areas of the landscape, including having to move into more areas that were more marginal. So that when we hit the tough conditions of the 1200s, we have Pueblo farmers who are on poor lands that would have failed during bad years. And we have Pueblo farmers on the best lands that our computer model predicts would have still had successful crops. So we have this uneven landscape. And what we've shown with our uh, other research at places like Castle Rock Pueblo is that that resulted in increased conflict during this period. That conflict results in people moving out of single family farms and moving into larger aggregated villages, which we think is a part of a defensive posture. And these are two of the largest agricultural aggregated villages in the region where Crow Canyon worked, Goodman Point Pueblo on the left and Sand Canyon Pueblo on the right. There are still smaller sites, but those often occur in areas that you could also interpret as being more defensible. So we think the story of why people left is this combination of climate change, uneven agricultural production, increasing conflict. So it's, I, I believe, a more nuanced picture of this last century that leads to the migrations that result in people uh, leaving the region and leaving it depopulated. So where did they go? A former Crow Canyon employee, now professor at CU Boulder, uh, who was part of the VEP team, summarizes these results from the VEP in his book, Winds from the North. And what he argues is that most of the people in southwestern Colorado spoke the Tewa language and they moved to where the Tewa speaking Pueblos are today on the Rio Grande. He would also argue that, that some people from the Mesa Verde region end up in all the Pueblos, but that most end up in this Tewa area. And he uses four lines of evidence for that. The physical anthropology is he built a database of all the human skulls that have been analyzed. 
Now, Crow Canyon no longer, Crow Canyon doesn't excavate human burials because that's offensive to Pueblo people. So these are things that were done in decades past and a database that, you know, measurements were taken in, in decades past. But what Scott did, uh, physical biologists have shown that the shapes of our faces um, is an indication of genetic proximity. People that have similarly shaped faces are more closely related than people whose faces are different. So he gathered a database of all these measurements, and what he showed is that the shapes of the faces from the Mesa Verde region cluster with those from the Tewa region. The ones prior to 1300 from the Mesa Verde region cluster with the post-1300 ones from the uh, Tewa region. He also worked with Pueblo people and collected their oral traditions. And the Tewa people have oral traditions of coming from the north. And so that's a part of the line of uh, argument of this connection between these two regions. He also did something really uh, innovative that I won't be able to go into too much here, but maybe if you have a question, I could talk about it. And that's looking at the language and something called conceptual metaphor, metaphor analysis and uh, historical linguistics. And he also did, this is what we did together as a part of the VEP is population reconstructions. So we had our study area in uh, Colorado and the other one in the Rio Grande, the blue line is Colorado the red line is the Rio Grande Tewa area. And what you can see is that the population in Colorado declines just as the population in the Rio Grande increases and they have about the same peak. So that's another line of evidence arguing for this connection between Colorado and the migration to the Tewa area. What's really interesting is that in the century before they leave Colorado, the Pueblo people of the Mesa Verde region start creating objects that are different from the rest of the Pueblo world. They start creating new pottery forms like mugs and kiva jars seen in the upper left corner. They create new designs that are most iconic of this area. They start building a new building type called towers that occur in this area and that are very rare outside of this area. Their household kiva, which was part of their dwelling, has a really distinctive shape in this area that's not seen in other areas. They start building a new type of ceremonial architecture called D-shaped bywall structures. Um, and they create a really distinctive style of masonry in this area called uh, Macalma style or Mesa Verde style tech block masonry. So it's as if the Mesa Verde region was getting a cultural identity, even though it would have recognized itself as being part of a bigger Pueblo world, that it really had its own identity too. And what's important about this is when they leave this area, this vanishes. So there are archeologists who disagree with our interpretations that they moved to the uh, Tewa area of the Rio Grande. And that's what, archaeological science is about. We don't get paid to agree with each other. So we debate this and we try and find new evidence uh, to keep working at this. But regardless of where they went, wherever they went after 1300, they didn't take this with them. And my point here is that these are more than just objects. These are loaded with meaning and they're leaving this behind. And when they get to the Rio Grande, they create new settlements that are architecturally completely different from the earlier Mesa Verde region settlements. Huge villages like this one uh, called Sapawe. The other thing that we've done is build an index of conflict. Uh, again, using these historic databases of skeletal material and quantifying the number of individuals that show sign of skeletal trauma that we think is due to warfare. The red line shows the Mesa Verde region of southwestern Colorado. You can see it varies from almost none to exceptionally high peaks where more than 90% of the skeletons show that evidence. What you can see in contrast with the blue line is the Rio Grande. 
and how conflict was relatively high early, but after 1300, when these people migrate to the Rio Grande, it's exceptionally low and it stays low um, uh, for the subsequent centuries. So Pueblo people, as a part of this transformation that was um, a part of the, the depopulation of the Four Corners region and the transformation of the Pueblo world in the post-1300 era, they figured something out. And I think they figured out things, I think there's things that today we could learn from Pueblo people. Uh, part of that is the emphasis on community and on reciprocity. So um, I won't go into much more detail on that, but I wanted uh, Sarah to queue up a video of one of my Pueblo colleagues, Tessie Naranjo, talking about the leaving of the Mesa Verde region. I wanted to broaden archaeology's reach into the next generation of people. And there was no reason not to do this except for academic bias. So that's not the right My one, idea Sarah. was to get youngsters to come out here. Sorry, there should be one that says Tessie. What's the other? Oh. No. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm all over the U.S. to do genuine archaeology. And it has a huge impact on youngsters when someone well, that's respects not it. them enough it must have gotten to let them mislabeled. have a trowel in their hand or whatever I'm sorry. to do real research. It's probably, it could be one of the other ones. Um, Uh, um, they got messed up somehow. Sorry about that. Yep. Um, so that's the end of my talk. What I want to emphasize is how extraordinary um, Crow Canyon is and um, that this research that I've been talking to you about has been done with, in partnership with over 100,000 students of all ages. And that education component of our mission is also something uh, that I'm really uh, proud of. And this is actually where Stuart, uh, Ricky Kid you know, was gonna go. So Mark, Mark, are you good for Q? Are you, good? are you good? You're yeah, still I'm on. good, or you could play that video, either one. Okay, so we'll play that video, and then we'll do a Q&A. That sounds great. I hope I haven't gone too long. You haven't. If they're all still happy. Good. Wave at him. Let him know you're still there. Talk to him. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, Mark, this is one of the biggest crowds we've had at a naturalist night, so... Um, Gosh, I wish I was there. That's okay. I could have... Okay, I we'll could have handed out Crow Canyon literature and taken credit cards, signed <laughs> people up. All right, so we got this video queued up. It's got these kids and stuff in it, carrying a cooler. Let's see if it's the right one. Okay, there was just no let it go. reason not to do this except for academic bias. My idea here was to get youngsters to come out here from all over the U.S. to do genuine archaeology. And it has a huge impact on youngsters when someone respects them enough to let them have a trowel in their hand or whatever to do real research. I found a few painted pieces. So I think that's from a different vessel, but like all these are corrugated and they're like a blackish grayish color. So I'm thinking that they're, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell because some of them are dirty, but I'm thinking that they're all from the same vessel. Day by day, they learn more and more. And by the end of the week, they were arguing with me about, you know, the archaeological record and the interpretation and what it all meant. The knowledge is now their own. I believe that the men were familiar with the trail that was made from here to northern New Mexico, and they knew about it, and they thought that perhaps they had a better chance at 
survival if they made that final move from here to there. If you've traveled away from home, and home and place and community and village is very important to you, then you start longing for that place. And I wonder, as I'm saying this, what the Mesoverde people felt as they were moving for the last time from here to there. Did they also have a song that they were singing as they were traveling so that they could remember where they came from? So, um... I combined those. I didn't combine those. I had Dylan combine those, and I thought the Tessie was going to be separate and earlier, but that was Tessie, uh, Santa Clara Pueblo scholar that we work with at the end. So that's my talk. I'm happy to take questions. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for... And you're gonna talk. Doctor, of all the pictographs that I've seen in the in the desert, I've never seen one of corn. And if corn was so important, why do you think there's no pictographs of corn? Well, there are. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that they're the most common, but there there are uh, petroglyphs that we think show corn. That's a good point, though. <laughs> awesome. Well, we got more, more questions coming. This one's from Fred. I'm going to hold the microphone. In your talk, I did not hear one time the word Anasazi. Is that a, uh, is that passe? Yes. Um, so um, there was a really important piece of legislation that happened in 1990 called NAGPRA, which stands for the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. And that piece of federal legislation required archeologists to start consulting with the tribes. And when they did that, many of the Pueblo tribes pointed out that the word Anasazi is a Navajo word um, that means ancient ancestors or ancient enemies, loosely translated. And the Pueblo people said, we would rather not have a Navajo word um, used for ancient Pueblo sites. This uh, topic gets more complicated than I can cover, uh, but it involves uh, what is the difference between Pueblo and Navajo. Um, so that the Four Corners area that was depopulated in 1300 when the first Europeans arrived, there are Native Americans that are living in that area. And there's two different groups, not Pueblo people, but Ute people and Navajo people. Um, and um, Navajo people today would be totally happy with still using the word Anasazi for those sites. So this illustrates um, that famous phrase, or that I'm going to paraphrase from William Faulkner, the past isn't over, it isn't even past. These sites, this archaeological landscape is totally a living landscape. It has meaning for us Anglos, but it's interacted with and has even more profound meaning for the native people that still live in this region today. And um, that becomes a really multivocal uh, and interesting topic in and of itself. But uh, a long-winded answer to your question that the term ancestral Pueblo has uh, now has more use than the term Anasazi. Mike, we'll go with a question from a gentleman named Michael. How do you date the uh, rock art and the pottery? 
I'm sorry, I couldn't understand that. Can you repeat it? How do you date rock art and pottery? Well, it's super hard to date, although people are trying to come up with techniques. And um, it's really an interest of mine because it could be critical in understanding this appearance of agriculture. In some cases, there's two kinds of rock art, pictographs, which use paint, and petroglyphs which chip through the varnish to expose the lighter colored stone beneath the surface. With the petroglyphs, the, the dark surface starts accumulating again and scientists are trying to figure out how to date that rate of repatination, but I don't think that has um, gotten to the point of wide use or results that everybody believes. With the painted uh, rock art, the paints can have organic material in them. And in some cases, that organic material can be carbon dated, uh, can be dated using the technique called carbon 14 dating. However, not much rock art dating has been done, but I believe that advances in this area will be one of the breakthroughs for the archaeologists that are practicing archaeologists archaeology after I'm gone. So Mark, we'll do one more, maybe two more questions. And this gentleman, you can actually see, he just stood up. He's in a red shirt. <laughs> Did you surmise the what wildlife were in the area? Can you repeat? Did you uh, discover anything about the wildlife that were in the area at the time? So did you ask if uh, something about the wildlife of the area? Yeah. During the time period that you studied. Uh, Sarah, can you repeat it for me? Did you investigate any of the wildlife during the time periods of all the years that you studied? Yeah, so one of the most interesting things about Pueblo people is uh, they, um, even though they adopt corn farming and corn farming was the basis of most of their calories, they never give up collecting wild plants, nor do they give up hunting. And hunting and wildlife is incredibly important to the Pueblo world, partly for food, but even more important for the meanings that are associated with those animals. So particularly important on the meaning side are birds. And um, an, a, a really important part of Pueblo people's religion are the prayers they make to connect with the planet and to connect with their ancestors. And those prayers are often accompanied by these things that in English we call prayer sticks. And those sticks are um, really simply carved sticks that have feathers attached to them. And I think a part of the metaphor is that the feathers are giving those prayers flight. Um, there is an incredibly remarkable uh, site in New Mexico that has deposits, ritual deposits that begin 4,000 years ago. When the very first people coming into this area with when corn first starts, they're throwing spears into there as offerings. Over time, spears give way to the bows and arrows. So the next layer of offerings in this shrine are arrows that are shot into this shrine. The next layer of offerings are these prayer sticks. So it's used up to this day. Um, but other animals, for example, bighorn sheep, have both have really important meaning too. Um, so Pueblo people, like all indigenous people, had an encyclopedic knowledge of their natural world. They knew every single plant and they had a name for it and a use for it. Or it, maybe it was a plant that they stayed away from. And the same is true for the wildlife. Not an animal, um, that wasn't known and wasn't uh, used in some way. Thank you 
I can go all night. I think, so. I think we can only do one more. Okay. You can probably um, tell. Uh, I know corn um, sucks out a lot of nutrients out of the soil, and I'm just wondering whether there's any indication that they did crop rotation or co-planting. Um, uh, um, I know from um, uh, other talks that I've heard that there's still some of the um, the pit um, uh, dry cropping uh, that where they had planted corn hundreds of years ago and they're still nutrient depleted. Well, it's, it's a really really great question, and as a part of the VEP, one of our team members was a soil scientist who argued it, it particularly. Um, takes nitrogen out of the soil. And this person argued uh, that that would have been extreme and that there would have been, uh, there would have had to have real limits on how continuously you could plant a field. Um, and he might be right. I push back against that person based on my work with uh, Pueblo farmers. So I know Pueblo farmers that have planted the same field every single year for their entire life. That's the same field that their father planted every year and the same field that their grandfather planted every year. Now it could be, so I just pointed this out and my colleague rejected that. He still insists that um, it doesn't work. But um, part of it could be that uh, the wide spacing allows them to sort of fallow within the field so that when they when they harvest each year they bend the dried stock over and they call that putting the plant to rest but what it does is show them where they planted the previous year and they would never plant in that exact spot the next year so this uh, pueblo farming project that we're doing we're continuing and really trying to work with Pueblo farmers to better understand the agrarian ecology of Pueblo maize farming uh, to get at better answers to the question that you asked. Awesome. Mark, can you tell everybody one more time where they can learn more about your organization? Yes, um, Crow Canyon Archaeological Center the website is www.crowcanyon.org. You can also email me. So I know people probably don't have a pen, but maybe Sarah can write this down. And my email is M, the first initial of my first name, then my last name, Varian, V as in Victor, A-R-I-E-N, at crowcanyon.org. And I would welcome any further questions, uh, either about the talk tonight or about Crow Canyon. Thanks again, Mark, for uh, taking the time to do this. And I would say that the technology worked. Would you say? So, Thank you so much. And so there's about 100 people here, just so you knew. Um, it's um, it's really gratifying to have people be interested in my life's work. Thank you so much. <laughs>